All right. Well, glad to be here this morning. We're going to continue on in, in Romans, but we're, we're kind of in the penultimate uh, sermon on this. John's going to kind of clean things up and finish us off next week. But we're going to spend today going through the first half of, of chapter 16. And um, it's kind of an interesting chapter because, as we see in many of John's, or John's, in Paul's letters, um, we see, um, you know, a bunch of greetings. So we're going to get a kind of a rundown on the leaders of the early Roman church. We're going to read Paul's concluding words and kind of a final warning. And then uh, I'm going to end today by talking about the, the God of peace because not that it was totally planned, but that happens to be our advent uh, this week. So first, just I kind of wanted to do a small history lesson. I know some of you are groaning right now, but um, we know that in Romans, Paul's addressing these, the, these dissensions between uh, the Jews and the Gentiles, and kind of as I was going into my studies this week, it became a lot more clear to me how this situation actually formed, and, and so I thought it was worth mentioning it. So John mentioned last week, but we know that the Jews were, were kicked out of Rome, and this happened around 49 AD. So Emperor Claudius, he expelled all the Jews from Rome because of continued rioting over Christos. So what is believed to have happened is that Roman Jews who witnessed Pentecost in Jerusalem then took their new held beliefs back to Rome. And they started to preach of, of the Messiah, of the risen Jesus. And, you know, if there's one thing we know from the books of the New Testament, it's that the preaching of Jesus as the Messiah, especially in the Jewish community, was it's like a 50-50 proposition is best, and you're 100% guaranteed to get a very passionate response, positive or negative. You know, I like to joke, there's, there's nothing like telling people that all the rules you've been following for thousands of years have become kind of void um, to really get some attention or, or start a riot. And, and not that they're totally void, but they, they lose some of their, their emphasis. And, of course, the Romans, being Romans, um, would not have cared about making any distinction between Christian Jews or, or Jewish uh, or Jew, Jewish Jews. Um, so they just would have sent everybody away. Blanket statement. So exiled, you have this kind of mass exodus, and all of these Jews go out into other major cities of the Roman Empire. Corinth, Ephesus, Philippi. Obviously, we recognize many of them. There are where also letters and churches were started. But then Emperor Claudius dies in about 54 A.D., so it's likely that as soon as he dies, kind of any of the rules or laws, like any kind of exile, exiles that were set by the previous administration kind of get reset. We see this kind of through Greek and Roman history. So after, as soon as he dies, basically they can all come back home. So after about a decade away, you have now this influx of, of Jewish Christians, and they come home to a Rome and to a church of Christian Gentiles that has grown for the past decade, but without that heavy Jewish kind of influence. So now you've got this influx of Jewish Christians coming back into Rome, 
And obviously they're upset by the lack of food laws, Sabbath laws, and circumcision being adhered to by the Gentiles. So hence why you kind of get this peak. Like why does this happen at this time? And it's because of this influx coming in. And you now have this two distinct cultural groups, but they're united in their faith and belief in Jesus. And so the timing of the letter of Romans is about 57 AD. So about three years after they can start coming back to Rome. So it's probably taken a couple years for these issues to really kind of hit their peak. Maybe they tried working through them and whatnot. And we don't know if Paul was ever directly asked to respond to these things or whether he wrote the letter after hearing of these issues. It doesn't really matter. He wrote the letter and he sent it to the church with Phoebe. So having said all of that about why this happens, let's jump in and kind of see how Paul concludes his letter to the church in Rome. But first, let's just pray. Lord, we just thank you for this time. We just thank you for just the the hospitality of, of Lord Calvin and the school district. Lord, we thank you for this place that you have put before us where we can gather to worship and to learn about you. And Lord, we, we stand so truly blessed by the freedom that we have to um, come and celebrate you whenever and wherever we want. And Lord, we just ask that this morning you just take your words to our heart. Lord, that you convict us where we need convicting. Lord, that you train us where we need training. And Lord, that you speak to the individual details that go on in each of us. Lord, we just give this time of, of learning and, and hearing to you, and we say, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. All right. So as I said, our reading in chapter 16, it's going to start with a, a who's who of the early Roman church. And many of these are names that we recognize from other letters, from the book of Acts, and you know, there's, there's a few reasons why Paul puts this big, long list of names. So, one, he likes them. He wants to say hi. He wants to greet those acquaintances um, from his previous ministries, from his previous time in other churches. Um, the second reason is this letter goes out to the capital C church in Rome. And what I mean by that is we kind of think of there being one church in Rome, but there wasn't. There was a lot of churches in Rome. There were churches meeting in synagogues, there were house churches, and so in this list are the leaders of various parts of these churches, and Paul is trying to be inclusive of, of everybody. So scholars believe that there are about five or more churches just named in this list of names. The third reason we see is these names add weight and a personal reference to Paul's letter. Again, Paul has never been to Rome. He has never met with these churches. So you think about it, without an introduction, how much weight are you going to give to a letter, um, especially one that is pretty much telling you you're doing things wrong and you need to change? You know, I I was thinking about all the times that Rich and John, whenever they bring up a, a, a special speaker or a guest speaker, what's the first thing that happens? They introduce them. 
They tell us how long they've known them, how they've done ministry together. And this is all about stating the depth of their relationship and their trust to put them up here, but it's also so that we have reassurance of the speaker's credentials. Paul, Paul desired that the Roman church would, would heed his letter. He wants to be taken seriously because division in the church is a very serious matter. And he wants to be introduced and kind of vetted by those that know him, not only because he wants to correct their doctrine, which takes a level of trust, but he's eventually planning to pass through Rome and he's going to be looking for support. You know, he talks about on his way to Spain. We, of course, know that he doesn't actually ever make it to Rome in that manner, but he comes in, in chains and, and as a prisoner of the emperor and, and of the Lord. So I'm going to read this. I'm pretty sure John gave me this passage because he loves watching me stumble over names. <laughs> like... I can almost guarantee it. Um, so we're going to go through this. I apologize for any of you with Latin or Greek or any kind of other languages other than English, um, but I actually have phonetic spellings for some of these. So, All right. I recommend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a si servant of the church, which is at Sancria, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and that you help her in whatever manner she may have need of you. For she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Also greet the church that is the house, in their house, sorry. Greet Epineus, my beloved, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinfolk and my fellow prisoners, who are outstanding in the view of the apostles, who were also in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. And Stachus, my beloved. Greet Apelles the approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my kinsman. Greet those of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, workers in the Lord. Greet Persisus, the beloved, who has worked hard for the Lord. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Greet Unsyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers and sisters with them. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nereus, and his sister Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Man, you ever want proof that the Spirit works in us? That was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I, learned, I couldn't do that in practice, I got to tell you. That was, anyway, sorry. That's, that's my own personal thing. Um, but now these big lists of names can be really, you know, they, they can sometimes be boring to read, and so we kind of tend to through them and, and skim read them. Um, but they're also very interesting, and they're there obviously for a purpose. And so they have some really great insight for the early church and for us these many years later. So Paul is greeting those he knew in other churches and that have gone back to Rome. 
There's Priscilla and Aquila, who Paul knew from Corinth. There is Epineus, who is mentioned as being the first convert from where Corinth is, is located. We tend to use Asia as a, as a different term now than they did. Um, you know, in this list, we see things like Paul greets twice as many men as he does women, but he commends twice as many women as men. And, and each of these people has a story that can be told. And much can be pulled from this list about who Paul commends, who's beloved. But where I'm going to just focus us back to today is that this is not, that this list is not of heroes and saints. These are ordinary people who were living their lives and trying to walk daily in their faith just like us. They are, you know, learning to pray. They're learning to have boldness to share their faith. And they're walking out how to meld their faith with their everyday life. You know, this list also serves as a reminder that the service of ordinary people matters to God. And it's a testimony of Paul's own commitment that, to loving his brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, Charles Spurgeon commented on this passage by saying, They were like the most of us, commonplace individuals, but they loved the Lord, and therefore, as Paul recollected their names, he sent them a message of love, love which has been embalmed in the Holy Scriptures. Do not let us think of the distinguished Christians exclusively so as to forget the rank and file of the Lord's army. Do not let the eye rest exclusively upon the front rank, but let us love all whom Christ loves. Let us value all Christ's servants. Now Spurgeon uses military language here, but it's a great reminder that churches and, and any assembly of God's people are not about the leaders. It's about the body, the entire body seeking the Lord. And these are the lists that we want to be mentioned in. You know, the Christian way is, is one of humbleness, and, and this is the way it's modeled by our Lord Jesus. But he also did not shy away from proclaiming who he was once the moment was right. Not in boasting, but because it was the truth and it would build the kingdom of God. You know, he spoke proudly about how the Spirit was moving in him and doing great things. And we also want our resume of experience and servitude to be a testimony for all and anybody that it'll help. You know, we want to hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. Because when we show the world how he lives in us and how he has changed us, then it's not us that gets the glory. It's him. And um, he is worthy of all glory. Paul finishes off verse 16 by saying that we should all greet each other with a holy kiss. I did ask Andrew about this last night, but in my notes I still have it written here that I can't speak for Asian culture, I'm not Asian, but those of us from European backgrounds or just those of us with weird older European aunts and uncles definitely know the tradition of getting a kiss on the cheek. This is a cultural thing. And I don't believe that this is one of those passages that has to be taken literally. But in mentioning this, there are some real-world application that we do need to heed. 
Greeting with a holy kiss is not about the action of the kiss, but it is about having a true and genuine affection for each other. The act of that face-to-face encounter forces us to see eye-to-eye and not to avoid contact with people. It's a kiss of equality where it makes us meet as equals without power structure or dominance. It forces contact and connection. You know, Jesus criticized Simon the Pharisee for not giving him a kiss when he invited Jesus to dinner. We see this in Luke 7.45. And, you know, especially for the Jewish leaders, touching a person meant risking your clean status. It, 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 and I think this is one reason in particular that Paul mentions the holy kiss. It's to remind the Jewish Christians in this group that they are to meet the Gentiles as equals and that their clean status was meaningless compared to the clean status of the righteousness of Jesus, which can be shared by all. So no, we don't have to kiss each other, just just to be clear. But if you want to and they feel comfortable, go for it. Paul then continues in verse 17 to 20, and this is where we're going to read his last conclusion and and a warning. He kind of has a caution, but then like immediately follows it with a lot of reassurance and praise. So we read there, Now I encourage you, brothers and sisters, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. For such people are slaves not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites, and by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience has reached everyone. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. So in the middle of this passage, Paul commends the Roman church for holding to their faith and doing a great job. They are staying true to the faith, they are reaching out for help in their trials, and they are supporting one another. But he also does not want them to relax. We know that as followers of Christ, there will always be opposition to us and our mission. We know this because Jesus said so. We may know by faith that the enemy is defeated and that the victory is already assured in Christ. But Satan does not believe what we believe. He is not sitting down to see what's happening and he is not resting, but is active in this world, trying to waylay us in any way that he can. You know, we usually see this take form in the church in in divisive behavior and skewed doctrine from verse 17. And we must always remember that the enemy is not obvious. He doesn't walk around with great horns on his head and a pitchfork and and laugh maniacally. Um, But Paul is also clear that, you know, the gospel calls for innocence, but absolute diligence in avoid being taken in. That we watch what we say and we do. In particular, that we watch what we say and do behind the scenes when no one is looking. To hold against skewed doctrine, we must be diligent about always taking things back to the Bible. 
If something is said from this pulpit or in a cell group and does not sit well with you, then you need to seek and understand and pray. You need to take it to the Bible. The Bible is our line in the sand, and the Spirit is our interpreter. You know, it's, it's, it's really, it's a sad thing, but people use the church, and they use Christ's name for their own gain. And we see this in verse 18, and we see it continue today. And we must be ready to stand and defend our faith. Winston Churchill famously said that England would fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, and we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. Well, five stones, we need to pray in the beaches. We need to pray in the landing grounds. We need to pray in the fields, streets, hills, bedrooms, offices, and anywhere that the Spirit convicts us to go to spiritual war. You know, as a global church, and and especially in Sunday school, we love to think of ourselves as God's warriors, members of the army of God. People love to quote the armor of God, and they love that verse that I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. But Jesus didn't model military training during his time on earth. He, he modeled prayer. And we do need to think of ourselves as warriors, but it's prayer warriors that we need to think. You know, the verse before the armor of God, it talks about that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness and against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Ephesians 6, verse 12. But then right after reading the army of God, we see with every prayer and request, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be alert with all perseverance and every request for all the saints. In verse 18. We love the idea of being part of a big group and of an army, but sometimes we get convinced that we're an army in this world, and we're not. Our battle is against the powers that come into this world. And when you read the verse before, and you read about the armor of God, and you read about the verse afterwards, you realize the armor of God is about being prepared for prayer. It is not about marching onto a physical field of battle. Our battle is on our knees, at our desk, on our bed, in a prayer meeting. It's anywhere that we quiet ourselves and we pray. You know, we mentioned that verse, we can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. Did you know that that also applies to developing a prayer habit? You know, sometimes we're asking for big things, but a lot of times it's the little things that we need to ask Lord, I need your strength to know how to pray longer than five minutes without losing focus. So from help to learning to pray longer with more focus, to better hear what the Spirit wants you to pray, to carry in prayer the burdens of your community, your friends, and your family, the Spirit is here to give you the strength to do all these things. And, and sometimes you think you don't have enough time to pray because you have a zillion other things to do. I know that feeling well, but I also know that feeling isn't the truth. You and I always have the time to pray. 
And so to this end, I would like to speak to you about a prayer topic for this church. So like Paul, I'm going to mix a little warning with some great encouragement. So we are in a very interesting season as a church. In the past 18 months, we have transitioned our senior pastor. We have moved locations. Christmas, we're going to be in another even different location. And all of these can be difficult and consuming situations. And yet the Lord by his hand has moved us from nothing but strength to strength. And I, I know I've spoken on this before, and I probably will again, but there is a great spiritual momentum to this church right now. The Spirit is coming in great power in our worship, in our prayer meetings, and in this body there are people that are listening and having powerful dreams and visions of encouragement. I believe there is great healing going on right now in this church, both physical, mental, and spiritual. And the best part of this is that it's not happening by anything that the leadership of this church has done. It's not the people that stand up here that are doing it. It is the people that sit beside you in those squeaky little blue chairs. And they are listening to the call of the Spirit, and they are deciding to be faithful. And I can't tell you how great an encouragement this is to me. And all I can do is encourage each of you to press into this season. This is a busy season. There's lots of things going on. But sometimes when the things get tough, the tough have to get going. And, you know, I think if you can push in in this season, the rest of the, the year and the years to follow will be nothing but easier. I encourage you to stretch yourself. Don't let the enemy tell you that you are not a prophet, a healer, an intercessor, an evangelist. Reread the prophetic words that you have and dig in and dig deep. Because I believe that the God really wants to activate this church in a new way. And that only starts and happens if we, his people, humble ourselves and pray. But there's another reason that I want to encourage you to pray, and it's that the enemy is everywhere around us right now. I'm not one to kind of typically over-spiritualize things, and, and yes, the enemy is always out there in, in general, but right now there is an intensity and a weight to his work right now. I spoke about this at, at Intercessors on Thursday, but all that momentum that we have he does not like it. And he is probing this community for any way to set us from this path. And there's two little visions that I had about this that I want to share about you. So one is the, the systemic way that he is testing our defense. And I'm going to date myself by using this example, but it's like Jurassic Park, where they talk about the intelligence of the velociraptors and how they systematically tested their fence one foot at a time, working their way around the entire cage. And that's what came to me, is that, you know, the enemy is testing it, looking for any weakness. The other vision I had is that the church was in a dome of protection, and the enemy was, was brambles that were climbing and swarming over the dome. And the tendrils of the brambles were just looking for any small footing, any small crack or flaw in the dome to start to work into. 
And we should be very encouraged by these visions. They don't sound that way, but we should because the Lord only sends words to encourage and to activate our spirits. And we should be very encouraged that the enemy is coming because he only pushes back when we are pushing forward. If we're in neutral, he's just going to leave us sitting in neutral. It was very clear in my visions that the enemy is not having any success. But it was also very clear to me that we need to be a house of prayer in this time and we need to press forward. Paul has called upon us that we need to be diligent. Moses told us that we need to be bold and courageous and not fear the giants, but take battle to them. Battle on our knees in supplication and humility before our king. Battle in the pages of our Bible reading the word of God and pressing it into our hearts. Because in the end, God will vindicate his interests and bring down his enemies, including their leader, Satan himself. We read that God will crush Satan under the feet of believers, fulfilling the ancient prophecy that comes all the way from the Garden of Eden. But note that it's the God of peace that crushes Satan. For all the military and, and violent wording and the passages of Ephesians about the armor, the most violent and irritating thing that we can do to Satan is to be at peace with God, ourselves, and our fellow man. How is he going to get us to sin when we're in God's peace? And by peace, I don't, I don't mean that like small moment of rest or, or quiet that you get during your day. I mean the complete and lasting, that, that slice of heaven here on earth, true peace. You know, equating a brief moment of quiet and rest to God's shalom peace is kind of like saying that a smile shows true contentment. Smiles are too surface. They're, they're too easily faked. God, you know, we need to remember, God doesn't need us for our physical strength. He, he has the strength of heaven. He just desires us to find peace and to come to him in prayer. Because when we find peace and when we pray, then the enemy is lost. And it, it actually even goes beyond lost. When you look at the words, it talks about the enemy being crushed, trampled, splintered, shattered. You know, all just because we are at peace and we are unceasing in seeking the presence of God and sitting at his feet. Genesis 3.15 spoke of the enemy being trampled under the heel of Eve's offspring, and that is under the heel of humanity. We have a daily battle to live out, but we win when we are at peace because Jesus is in us and he is the Prince of Peace. The more we let him in, the more we can see the enemy under our heels. When we are in Christ, the enemy cannot strike at our heart or our mind, but can kind of merely nip at our heels. I always picture this like small little chihuahua, you know, the ankle biter. But beside that humorous image, it doesn't mean that we need to be overconfident. You know, verse 18 talked about being diligent. But we can rest assured that his power over us is broken in Christ. 
You know, our Advent this week is about peace. But what is that peace with God? It's knowing that while we are sinners, we are saved and redeemed because of God's love and eternal redemption of us. The angels' words to the shepherds on that first Christmas were, Glory to God in highest heaven and peace on earth to them with whom God is pleased. So whom is God pleased with? God's pleasure and peace rests upon those who receive his son by faith. You know, in Romans 5, a few weeks ago, we read, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. To have peace with God means that our great sin debt has been paid and God sees us as righteous. We are no longer enemies, but beloved children. You know, think of some of those simple and peaceful times that you had in your life before responsibilities, relationships, bills, all of the things that as adults we deal with. And I think most of us go back to when we're a child. And whenever something went wrong, you just went to one of your parents and they would give you a hug and everything was better. You had peace. Sometimes nothing was said, nothing was fixed, but there was peace in their presence. And this is what we get to do with God, our Father. We get to come to him, and there may not be an instant fix or a ready solution, but there is a peace that comes in his presence. And we can have that peace in the presence of God's holy nature because he sees us in Christ. Peace with God means our consciences are cleared through confession. The overwhelming weight of guilt that plagues all of us is gone. All of it placed on Jesus on the cross. There's a part of us that loves this God of justice and vengeance. We love the idea that God's going to come and crush our enemies and that we're going to be vindicated for our faith. However, Again, our verse does not say that a God of justice is going to crush our enemy. It's the God of peace. Prayer connects us with Jesus, the Prince of Peace, who came to bring us his peace. Not fake peace, not a pretend calm, not ignoring trouble, but that real, lasting, eternal, shalom peace. So I want to encourage you all today to dig into prayer and find that peace. Dig into prayer for the protection of this community. Dig into prayer for what God is wanting you to do in your life. Dive into his presence. Go deep and then be bold and courageous with the plans that he lays before you. Let's pray. Lord, this is a busy season but yet you call us to peace. Peace with you, peace with ourselves, peace with fellow man. And Lord, we just acknowledge that you are the Prince of Peace, that all peace comes by your hand and through your hand. And Lord, this is where we want to be. We want to sit in your presence. And so Lord, we just come and we ask that you show us, you train us, be the great teacher, Lord, 
meet us in the meet us in those moments lord we they may be short they may be brief but lord you are just so happy when we come into your presence lord when we come and speak to you and so lord let us let us take that don't don't let us be discouraged by length or time but lord show us how to just find again that peace to put off the anxiety of performance or the anxiety of the things that surround us and lord just dive in deep to you because lord we do seek for this church to be your tool here on earth lord we seek that this church be a tool that builds the kingdom of heaven and lord that happens when we pour into you when we come into you because lord it is by your might it is by your strength it is by your wisdom your plans lord it is by your your perfect and majestic nature that we achieve anything and so lord we just come and acknowledge that you are our king of kings and lord that any time with you is the best time lord help us to find not just prayer time but joy in prayer lord fill us with joy that we would desire more of it lord that it would become more precious to us than a tv show or a substance or to you know a game that's on our phone lord let us desire that time with you because it is there that you answer it is there that you meet us it is there that you build into us and you declare that we are your children and lord like a child we want to spend time with our parents we want to spend that time just hanging out with them leaning against them while they do things lord there is just such a comfort that comes from your presence and so lord we just lift this up before you this morning and we just ask that you be our prince of peace in this season Lord, that you be the protection around this church as we just continue to push in to everything that you put in front of us. Lord, let us not be scared of the giants. Let us not be scared of the big things, the big goals that you put in front of us. But Lord, we want to be bold and courageous and we want to take the land. Lord, we want to take everything that you put in front of us because your will is perfect and your will is good. Amen. What a great reminder that we are the body of Christ, that you are the church, that we come together in the last part of Paul writing for that encouragement of you're doing a great job, that God is with you. What a great reminder for us to pray in this season, to pray as a church going to experience warfare. So where do we go? We pray. So let's pray. Lord, we come. We thank you. We give you all our worship and all that we are. And Lord, we just come before you and may you remind us of your goodness. Remind us of your love. Remind us of your joy, your peace, your hope. And Lord, your greatness is for us, and it goes before us. So Lord, 
May we continue to walk out what you have for five stones. But may we first walk out this as your people. So Lord, may the God of peace and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a good week. We'll see you guys next week.